Fuckers. Welcome to Speak and Destroy, episode 51. Speak and Destroy is a podcast about Metallica, and I am your host, Ryan J. Downey. My guest this episode is Jay Bennett. Jay is one of the best working journalists in the rock and metal space. Jay and I were introduced to each other by mutual friends, but we've been traveling in the same circles for a long time, and I've been a big, big fan of his work. Probably will recognize his byline primarily from Decibel Magazine and Revolver Magazine, but he's also a contributor to Bandcamp Daily, Apple Music, Playboy, High Times. He's a radio show host. He hosts and DJs an event in LA called Heavy Tuesdays. He plays guitar in a killer band called Ides of Gemini. Incredibly sharp, super easy to talk to, and someone who clearly knows his metal. Unsurprisingly, this is a bit of a long episode because we had a lot to talk about. Of course, Metallica takes up a significant portion of the episode, as it should, but this is also kind of an inside baseball look at a pretty specific corridor of the music business that both he and I inhabit. If you're enjoying Speaking Destroy, the best thing you can do is go into Apple Podcasts, leave a five-star rating, and write a nice little review. I know I say that every episode. I know every podcast you listen to asks you to do that, and that's because it really does help. Check out past episodes with guests like M. Shadows from Avenged Sevenfold, Lizzie Hale from Hailstorm, Biff Byford from Saxon, Mark Tremonti from Alterbridge, Rob Flynn from Machine Head, and many, many more. Talking Metallica. Speaking Destroy is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Check out some of our other podcasts like No Prize from God, which features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything in between. Recent episodes featured Dustin Kensrew from Thrice, Mina Caputo of Life of Agony, Nergal from Behemoth, Blackie Lawless of Wasp, all talking about life's big questions and their individual journeys. You can find Speaking Destroy at the all-new relaunch speakanddestroy.com and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. You can also follow me on Twitter at Ryan Downey and on Instagram at, at SuperheroHQ. So here it is, my conversation with Jay Bennett. This is Speak and Destroy. man okay so i i uh i grew up in um a bizarre little corner of massachusetts that is um practically rhode island i grew in i grew up two towns in to massachusetts from rhode island so i i grew up much closer to providence rhode island than than boston um like maybe 12 miles from providence about 35 miles from boston I'm, I'm, I'm already learning something because I've always thought of you as a Boston guy <laughs> until right now. <laughs> well, I lived, I, so I, I moved, I lit, when I was 17, I moved to Boston. Oh, gotcha. I, okay. And so, so uh, I, I did live in Boston for about 10 years and in, in Boston proper. Um, but uh, um, yeah, you know, I'm a mass hole. I, I grew up in, <laughs> in, in Massachusetts. Um, and I think, you know, I can, my earliest, I remember the clearly, the first two tapes I got. And it's funny thinking back now because they kind of shaped my, <laughs> they kind of shaped me in, in the two things that I kind of still listen to the most. Um, so obviously, you know, so I'm, uh, uh, I'm, I'm 43 years old. I'll just throw that out there. So, uh, like a lot of people my age, 
Michael Jackson Thriller, mm-hmm. you know, was that was one of my first tapes. And the other one was Def Leppard's Pyromania. Oh, wow. Which were both, so 1983, they both were, I think that's right. Does that sound right? You know, I remember like vividly as a little kid, um, I had a bunch of friends in my neighborhood on the block that I lived in. And um, I remember listening, you know, everyone had their little like boom box, you know, and a lot of the kids that I, that who were my age that I played with, they, a lot of them had older brothers and sisters. I was, I was the oldest, but most of the kids I hung out with were, um, they had older brothers and sisters. So I, and they would always have the little, the boom box would be outside, like just doing what kids do playing shooting hoops or whatever. Um, and, uh, I remember vividly, uh, getting from just commercial radio, I guess it would have been at the time. Um, ACDC, Van Halen, um, that kind of stuff, um, kiss. And it's crazy because, you know, I, I was probably seven or something when I heard all those bands for the first time. And they're still some of my favorite bands. <laughs> like my, my taste hasn't changed that much. I mean, obviously it's expanded in a lot of different directions, in a lot of different directions. But, um, like as far as like the essentials, I, I'm, I have not progressed. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. I I, th- I, th- I think I remember once uh, maybe emailing you or something about um, your band and telling you how much I appreciated the Celtic Frost style guitar playing. And you said something self-deprecating to the effect of like, yeah, that's about all I can do. So that's why it sounds that way or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I still I still love 80s pop music just as much as I love 80s metal. You know, I, 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 I love all that stuff. It's just not, um, it just wasn't the direction I, I went in as far as like writing about it because I guess this is interesting to think about I, because metal stayed interesting to me after the eighties and pop music did not really. Mm. Um, but if you take, if you go back to that era, the eighties, like I'm man, you know, uh, Michael Jackson, uh, Duran Duran, um, you know, uh, Echo and the Bunnymen, all, all that. Aha. Uh-huh, like, you know, Dude. I love, I love all that stuff and just as much as the metal, but like I, metal stayed interesting to me and pop music did not for the most part. Aha uh-huh is one of my favorite bands of all time. Um, I way before I discovered, uh, metal or anything heavy, my first loves were Billy Idol, Adam and the Ants. Love um, it. Yeah, Duran Duran. Um, I had an older brother who's who's five years older than me, and some of that stuff came. You know, he turned me on to Hanoi Rocks and some other things that I never would have discovered without him. But yeah, those were my touchstones. And I was, you know, I grew up in uh, blue collar, poor side of town in Indianapolis, on the south side, and uh, you know, single parent home and all that sort of thing. And definitely, all all this stuff we're talking about, while it was popular. It's not what anyone I knew at school was listening to. <laughs> no, but you know, I got to mention Depeche Mode, man. That's another, which is another band that I love then and I love now just as much, if not more. Violator is my favorite album of all time. Oh, dude! And so uh, Ryan Clark from Demon Hunter, where his his metal battle vest has a uh, huge Violator back patch on the back. Oh, that's great. That's great. Yeah, it's like that record in particular is such a 
touchstone with a lot of a lot of friends of mine. It comes up a lot. I, Greg and I went to see Depeche Mode together actually last time I saw them in San Diego. I have a fun aha fact for you too. Oh, dude, we're about we're about to go deep on aha. I'm, I'm building. I, to I it, don't so. I don't know if this is still true, but a couple a, a, several years ago, I was writing an article about Emperor Norwegian black metal in general, uh-huh. and I was kind of addressing a little bit like talking about the, uh, getting into sales figures and things like that a little bit, just kind of talking about the cultural impact. Uh-huh. And as I was researching, I found out that aha, and this was a few years ago, so I'm not sure if it's still true, but it might be. Uh, Aha is the the top-selling Norwegian band of all time, or at least they were. I believe that is still the case. Yeah, I think it might be, yeah. Which is not where I thought you were going with that when you said Norwegian black metal, and I'm actually happy because I'm I'm hoping I get to blow your mind a little. Okay. So I have another podcast called No Prize from God, uh, Uh where it's conversations about belief, unbelief, and everything between. So uh, essentially the elevator pitch is... You know, in looking at the religion and spirituality category, you see a bunch of right-wing evangelicals, militant atheists, and some new-agey self-help stuff. And there's nothing really for anyone else who's interested in tripping out about life's bigger questions. So I started this podcast with the idea that, you know, I would interview people uh, who are creatives, so largely musicians, but also playwrights, filmmakers, authors, um, who are coming from some sort of unique take on the spiritual side you know i've had anyone from dwid from integrity to uh jesse from Killswitch, you know maddie from memphis mayfire to you know i had a, a book who wrote a woman about tarot cards i had uh, sister kate from the sisters of the valley aka the weed nuns where they they live in a convent where they grow weed and smoke weed as a sacrament and you know just all, all across the spectrum right and two of my um you know, representatives of the Norwegian black metal scene have been Satir mm-hmm. and a gentleman who uh, fronts a band called Emperor. Oh, yeah. And I, I don't know how we stumbled into this, but in the very top of the conversation, I might have brought it up because they were such an important band to me. And, and I know they're from Norway. Uh, yeah. Guess who our fellow AHA fan is? <laughs> I, I, that does not surprise me at all that he's into that because he... He, like, covered Lenny Kravitz on his new EP. <laughs> right? Yeah. And he told me a story about – or no, he didn't tell me the story. Dude, who told it? It might have been Mortise that told me the story. At some point in Emperor, they were seriously discussing uh, covering Kiss, Do You Love Me? Wow. So yeah. I'm going to give you this homework assignment because I think you'd be better suited at it than me. This could be our collaborative project. Okay. He told me that there is a part – on anthems to the welkin at dusk that rips off an aha song no way and sort of left it to me to go go back and find it but uh he said it's in there <laughs> they're, uh, yeah they're one of his favorite bands of all time wow okay oh, wow i yeah i'm okay i gotta go yeah. but you know man i'm wondering now because i wrote an article about the making of that record where i interviewed everybody through the anthems at the well uh anthems uh-huh. um Oh, no, I'm sorry. I didn't write about anthems. It was about Nightside, so never mind. It doesn't matter. Uh, was that uh, De- Decibel Hall of Fame? Yeah, yeah. I did one on Nightside. And, uh, um, so I was going to say I wonder if you mentioned it, but wrong album, so never mm-hmm. mind. Yeah, I, oh, and that, that's a whole – man, we could do a whole podcast about the uh, decision-making process with those. And Yeah. I, I've, I've only ever written one, but I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the series in general. I've, I've probably read all of them. I uh, think I wrote the first uh, – Albert could tell you the more statistic, but I think I wrote the first – 18 or 19 out of 20. Oh, wow. I knew you wrote, I knew you wrote a good chunk of them. I didn't realize it was, yeah. And you know what? In those decisions, I don't, uh, 
I mean, they're hard to make, you know, and, and actually we'll, we'll dive into that as it relates to Metallica very specifically, actually. So put a pin in that for a second, but to, to, okay. to wrap up our aha thing, I was such a fan that I was collecting, you know, in fifth and sixth grade, I was going to the record store and buying um, the 12 inch singles with my yeah. with my lunch money, um, you know, so I could get the extended <laughs> remix B-side. I actually took a copy of, I think, Scoundrel Days to Supercuts and asked to have my hair cut like Morton Harkett. <laughs> not, not really the thing you should be doing in Indianapolis in 1986. <laughs> um, not exactly the thing that makes you popular with your peer group. But, uh, but yeah, that was all the stuff that I loved. And then I discovered metal largely through the young ones uh which oh wow M mtv used to show it like at three in the morning or something on saturdays and uh, yeah. my, my older brother and i would tape it on the vcr and i spent so much of my childhood watching the young ones uh on these you know dubbed vhs tapes that we'd recorded before i went to school that was part of my morning before school ritual was popping that in while i'm eating my cereal Motorhead plays Ace of Spades in the middle of the living room. So good. And there were stuff like, you know, Madness and stuff that I was already familiar with. But that, yeah, that was the first time I saw Lemmy, heard Motorhead, knew anything about any of that and was just like, this is, you know, I was aware of metal, but I tended to think of it as, as you know, hair metal. That's what was big at the time. And, and I... what's great about that Motorhead scene is that like, how, I love that that was like your first interaction with them because obviously like, how could you not be sold on that day? <laughs> exactly. It's like, it, yeah, every <laughs> single thing cool about it was there. Yeah. And it was also like, man, these are, you know, I, of course, Vivian was my favorite character and it was like, yeah. this is like four Vivians. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome, man. I, I think you're the first American who's ever told me they got turned on to metal from the young ones. Oh, that's awesome. And I, and yeah. I, and I can, I can see to this day even, how it's funny, like you were saying about those two records, you know, comedy is one of my great loves along with music and cinema. I, I can see how much of my sense of humor to this day was shaped and warped and molded by the young one. Yeah. And just how my, what I find funny and the jokes I crack and what, I, you know, so much was informed by being so young and watching those four idiots, five idiots actually doing their thing was just uh, was awesome. And did you get into bad news, like the spinoff thing? That they you know did what? I, there were there, and there were a couple. You know that I don't know. If this is a weird hangup that I have, but I could draw a parallel to like Broken Lizard. Like I love Super Troopers. Yeah, I've watched it a million times. I've been to see the Broken Lizard guys live, and every time they do another film, I watch it, and I, I love yeah. the ensemble. And I just for yeah. some reason I can't get into them as different characters, which I know is, makes me a terrible fan. <laughs> But I always ran into that same problem. Well, it's the best movie by a lot, though. So yeah, I mean. Yeah, and that, that I'm sure that's that's probably part of it. But yeah, so I had a similar. You know, I should probably revisit as an adult now some of the uh, the young ones offshoots that all those guys did because I know there there were a couple shows, right? There was one called Bottom or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I sort of vaguely remember seeing that that a little bit, but I don't. The bad news stuff I like, I think, is. Um, I mean, I would. I, I, there, there, are, there are parts of bad news that are definitely up there with the best, some of the best young ones stuff oh, for sure. I'll have, I'll have. I definitely haven't seen all of it, and I definitely haven't seen it more than once. So I'll have to go back into it. Whereas, whereas, yeah, every every young ones episode is like chapter and verse. And you know, there was a young ones video game. For, I didn't uh, know that. Oh, dude, you got to Google that thing. It's I've I've never played it, of course, and didn't have it. But it was I want to say it was in television. 
it wasn't even like Atari or Nintendo. It was like, you know, one of the others. And, huh. um, and, it, and it's very crude. And, uh, and by crude, I don't mean the humor. I mean the actual gameplay like, and graphics. Pong, yeah, yeah. But yeah, it exists. You, and you can, find, you can find YouTube videos of like playthroughs of it and stuff. Wow. But, uh, I have yeah, no idea. It's crazy. Hidden history. That does lead us nicely into metal. So I think your experience was probably the traditional trajectory, right? In the in the eighties, was hair metal into thrash metal, into death metal, into black metal, and, and then you know and beyond. Right. And yeah. for for me, I kind of leapfrogged the hair metal portion. You know, my first concert that I went to with friends and not with a parent was Dio and Megadeth. And at the time, it was because Megadeth was my favorite band. The kids I went with went because they loved Dio and didn't care about Megadeth. And, yeah. um, you know, since then, you know, I got to see Dio a, a handful of times after that and was a much bigger fan as an adult. But at the time, I was just like, oh, this is just poofy-haired, fancy-singing, uh, right. metal-y stuff that I don't like. You know, um, my, my friend and I went to go see uh, the Monsters of Rock tour with Van Hagar. And it was Van Halen, Scorpions, Dokken metallica and kingdom come and we wore our metallica shirts i've told the story on the podcast before but we wore our metallica shirts and stood with our middle fingers during all of kingdom come watched <laughs> watched metallica and went home so we were wow. home at like three in the afternoon whereas now if that tour was happening today i would love to watch van halen with sammy Hagar. Yeah, but at the time it was just like, yeah, I don't want anything to do with any of these glam bands. I don't care about Dawkins. Oh, I, I love Dawkins. I, I, I love the Scorpions. You know, yeah, but, back, yeah. but back then it was just, you know, uh, basically this, the the version is a punk rock friend of mine who was into all the new wave stuff that I was into in middle school uh, somehow ended up with the uh, cassette of Peace Cells and gave it to me really just to get rid of it. Didn't like it and was like, do you want this? And it was like a lightning bolt moment of going in and putting that in my tape deck and yeah. my, you know, hair being blown back like the cassette commercial. Yeah. Losing my mind. And then just, you know, I bought Thrash Metal Magazine because it had Dave Mustaine on the cover. Uh-huh. It's funny to think about how this was 1987. There was a top 20 Thrash Metal albums of all time article, which probably hasn't changed much, uh, <laughs> written by a writer named Don Kay, who I would mm-hmm. meet years later in the movie reporting world because he writes about movies now and told him how this article helped change my life. Uh, but yeah, and then I just went, you know, headfirst into thrash from there. But all of which is a long-winded way to say, yeah, tell me about sort of your, what I would assume is a little more traditional and like a lot of my other metal friends. You know, for me, it was like, I skipped hair metal, I went right into thrash. And then as death metal, as all my thrash friends were getting into death metal is when I got into hardcore. So mm. I kind of missed Morbid Angel and Deicide and Cannibal and, and all that stuff as people were. I, I loved death which to me was the first kind of real death metal thing I had heard. To me, it was like just a really aggressive thrash band. I wasn't, yeah. I didn't really recognize that it was like a new genre was happening. Yeah. And so then I was into hardcore and kind of missed death metal. And then of course, eventually came back around to, you know, a more well-rounded take on everything. But what was your journey? Yeah. I mean, I absolutely would, I absolutely went through the hair metal and, and I mean, went through, made it sound like I, I'm not still don't love that. I do love it. And, and a conversation I've had with people not, and not many people seem to have this experience. Um, or, or maybe they do. I, I haven't talked to many, I should say. Uh, I think if you grow up in like a, I mean, where I grew up was this kind of bizarre area because it was like, parts of it were like 
rural. I mean, when I moved into my neighborhood, there was a vacant lot next door where I literally, like the third day we lived there, I found a cow skull. Wow. You know? But at the same time, I was 15 minutes from Providence, Rhode Island. So it's like it was <laughs> weird, you know? There was a 95 went through, practically went through my backyard. But it, so it's like, I, I don't know how to explain what you would call that, like geographically or topographically that area. But um, um, the result being, I didn't even understand the fact, like until I was probably in my late teens or even early 20s, I didn't get that whole idea of that you were either a Motley Crue fan or a Metallica fan. Mm. I, I that was not that was totally foreign concept to me. Like why 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 I mean why can't you like both? And I still like both. Um, but but I be kind of became aware that like there were people who liked a lot of the things that I was into the Metallicas, the Slayers, the Megadeths, who thought that um, Dokken and Cinderella and um, you know even Molly Crew they had a certain you know they or like the first Molly Crew record that was okay or whatever yeah yeah totally uh, they had some weird like demarcation line or whatever yeah if it if, um, it, if it was a little more street punkish than yeah. full on glam yeah. it was okay yeah. but, but and so they looked down on other stuff and so that yeah I didn't I didn't grow up with that at all um so that was kind of like a a weird kind of social revelation to me uh yeah in like late teens early twenties I was like oh. Like, really? You can't? And I, so, but, but I didn't, as much as I became aware of it, I never adopted that philosophy. I still, I still, I, I like Cinderella and Dawkins and Metallica and Motley Crue and, and Megadeth and Slayer. And I don't, um, and yeah, I understand what, wh why that dichotomy is there and why it exists now. Um, but it, it doesn't, um, just doesn't apply to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think this might explain uh, it might have been one of the first conversations you and I ever had because I, you know, longtime admirer of your work. This says a lot now about your justify your shitty taste article on Cold Lake. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. And 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 you know another thing. This is crazy, man. So I have another. So now that we're talking about this, all this stuff is coming back to me. Very early on in Decibel, uh, when I was, I had a column in the magazine called Cry Now, Cry Later, mm -hmm. and I basically wrote an article about because there was a lot of um. You know, when Decibel started, and I think it started in 2004, and I started doing the column at some point, maybe in late 2005 or early 2006, something like that. Um, so it was still pretty early on in the magazine. The magazine was like less than two years old. And I started doing Cry Now, Cry Later, and I kind of wrote something along these lines because, because as I started working for Decibel, I became even more aware of this attitude of like, this metal is okay, this metal is not, this music is okay, this music is not. And I just mm -hmm. thought... It's fucking garbage. So I wrote this article basically saying, I think it's okay to um, like at the gates just as much as, and Stevie Wonder is the example I used. I said, I, I think it's just as okay to, you can like at the gates and Stevie Wonder at the same time and it's fine. And I was in, around that time that article came out, not long after, I was in Philly um, meeting Albert for the first time. But I also, on my own, I just went, when this is when Relapse had a physical store. I was in the right. store. I was in the store, and the kid behind the counter, like I don't know, how my photo had been in something, or something. he recognized me, and he's like, "You're the guy who wrote that fucking article." And he started like laying into me about how I should not be writing about Stevie Wonder in a metal magazine. <laughs> and I was like, and I and I was just kind of like, like, dude, you, you are why I wrote that article. You, you, and everyone like you, you know. 
Like, fucking grow up. (laughs) And there's a huge distinction, too, that it's not like you were writing about the Backstreet Boys, you know? It was fucking Stevie Wonder, you know? Stevie Wonder. (laughs) Yeah, for me, and this is something I figured out about myself, it took me a while to realize what it was. But I, I, I recognize that what I am attracted to in any kind of art, and music in particular, is authenticity and intention. So that's why... Even if something isn't for me, if I can sense somewhere that there's an authenticity behind it, that that this person means it, that they're doing this because they have to, and this is this is who they are, and they've got to get this out of them, I, I like it, and I can appreciate yeah. it. Corn is by no means my favorite band, and that whole movement that followed in their wake is one of my least favorite subgenres. Agreed. But I always appreciated Corn and their initial sort of. Uh, offering that oh man this is these are some weirdos from some weird place and, and this this singer is working some shit out up there and yeah. i always appreciated and respected that and why i could never enjoy limp biscuit is i saw that and i went oh this is a guy who would definitely push me into my locker in high school yep um who saw someone being successful at this other thing and is copying it and and I've come even to the point where I can go, okay, I can appreciate the certain artistry in mastering like a commercial scheme that way. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. but uh, I, I still just hate it and it's not for me. And that's no, the, I, um, you know, I'm, I'm kind of infamous in my one of my friend circles for uh, starting this huge debate once um, about the definition of art. And, you know, most people in the room were arguing that anything's art if you call it art. You know, some throwaway dance floor jingle is as much art as a TV commercial song as, you know, Emperor. And my argument was about this intention. And I had someone say in the argument, you know, it got kind of heated. It's pretty funny. You know, I could take a shit right here on this porch and put a flower in it and call it art. And I was like, yeah, I I would say it's not art because it's some you literally took a shit to prove a point. You know, if you had some other sort of intention behind it, I would say, I'd say it, is, it is art. Did the Black Eyed Peas make Let's Get It Started because that was something they really needed to express? Um, <laughs> you know, and it gets into some weird judgment calls about, uh, you know, and I try to avoid those by and large. But so, But for me, it's more about do I sense that that's for real? Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, you have to trust your instincts, right? Yeah. Yeah. And I think to your point, that to me is the... The, the continuity between At The Gates and Stevie Wonder is that uh, those are people making something that is of so much significance to them and pouring their what's unique about their life experience into what they're creating. And I respond to that, you know. And, and I mean, as you know, my my two cents in that in that sort of debate is um you know what? I like plenty of stuff that is would probably be classified as nothing but commercialized garbage. Um, and so what or most people would think of it that way. Um, I don't I don't even kind of get into like, is it art or not? My my attitude is sort of it's just as OK to like something as it is to not like something, you know? Right. And that's something I've probably had to learn as a grown up yeah. <laughs> because yeah. it's funny because I've been on different sides of the argument depending on. The situation, you know, and I found myself, you know, working at MTV, fighting the fight 
for various things and being mad about certain things. And then, you know, I could walk out of that office and go hang out with a bunch of old hardcore dudes and they all think I'm a corny sellout because I'm working at MTV. Right. <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah. And I just spent half the day, you know, yelling at somebody about, uh, you know, some band we covered that I thought was undeserving. Yeah. And I would say another thing about me and that ties into the justify your shitty taste and often comes up with Metallica is just in kind of scrolling through and, and definitely I wouldn't say in every case. But more so than most, when I look at the Justify Your Shitty Taste pieces, I love Paradise Lost One Second. I love Tiamat Deeper Kind of Slumber. I like Load and Reload. I yeah. love the Black Album. You know, I, I can appreciate a lot of Cold Lake. Um, and again, it's not certainly not every record that's ever hit that column, but a lot a lot of those records are ones that I found myself, you know, vehemently defending uh, amongst friends at various points that were, you know, there was always this kind of outright dismissal of these different eras of these different bands. And I always appreciated that there was still so, even Cold Lake, you know, if you take the packaging away, Tom Warrior is just such an interesting cat, right? And he was just, he, yeah. he was never not doing something interesting. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I, I think I'm even mentioned in that, in that article. Um, I think, you know, I think the, 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 I mean, the I would go as far as to say that 99% of the backlash for that record came from the fact that it said Celtic Frost on it. Yes. If, if there was any other band, it wouldn't it, it wouldn't have got nearly the the the, the hatred um, that it did. You know, I mean, I think if you take it on its face and remove the fact that this is like Celtic Frost, who who you you know knew and loved from all this previous stuff, um, I don't. I think it gets looked at differently. So yeah, um, I would argue yeah. the same with Load. If you take the the blood and semen and piss and semen off the cover of those records, yeah, take the name Metallica off, maybe. Excuse me, that was the best part of that record, <laughs> right? And this gets into the thing we we uh, you and I have talked about before. I should say uh, different conversations. Yeah, there's certain bands where we understand why they provoke such animosity from certain segments, but we but but it's part of what we personally appreciate about those fans. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I mean I actually the one Metallica thing that is I still can't wrap my head around is Lulu. But I actually when I had Alex Skolnick on the podcast. Yeah. And he was the person who really broke it down for me in the sense that like the fact that I can't wrap my head around it is why Lars made it. <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's like, oh, I thought, you know, and then I'm thinking about Lars as that guy with his art collection. Right. And it's like, oh, okay. that was the first time it ever made any kind of sense to me uh, beyond, you know, my, my take on it was always like, hey, I totally understand. They jammed with Lou Reed at the Rock Hall. They got to know him. He said, I want to make a record with you. Who passes that up? My only argument was what they made together wasn't good. And it should have been something that just got put on a shelf. And then someday when they're a legacy act and, you know, God forbid someone's left the earth and that's when they go hey did you know once upon a time they did this weird record with lou reed and that's right. when it comes out as a curiosity absolutely man yeah that i i found that record to be unlistenable it is, it is literally unlistenable and it's like saying anger is a very difficult listen from start yeah. to finish but it's not unlistenable and, the, yeah. and and there are versions edits acoustic performances and so on like there, there's stuff that i can mine as a fan even out of what is a difficult record with San Anger, but man, I, every time I've tried with Lulu, I, I, Lulu, I can't get through a song. Yeah. But yeah, when Skolnick was on and he, and he, uh, he, he talked about it, that was the, the 
art should provoke and inspire. And sometimes the provoking and inspiring isn't necessarily positive, but sometimes that's what's awesome about it. You know, that's, you know, it's piss Christ, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So, yeah. So this, of course, brings us to the topic du jour. And this is how these conversations go, by the way. Yeah, it's okay. (laughs) When and where did Metallica enter your life specifically? That is a good question. Um, I I can't I know where, what album I came in on and the and the song that got me into them, um, but I can't remember if I heard it first or if I so one is the song mm-hmm. I can't remember which is also the first video they did as as you know mm-hmm. um, I can't remember if I saw the video first or if I heard it uh, on a tape I I want to say I heard it first because I remember okay wait. I heard it on a tape first because then I remember seeing the video at some point and, um, and thinking, um, these guys look badass Cause I didn't actually see. So this is, this is great, man. I had, there was this, um, I had this babysitter when I was a kid. Um, uh, and, uh, the, the kid who lived next door, was like two years older than me and, or three years older than me. And, uh, he was super into metal and, um, you know, as you are when you're like, a um, uh, you know, 11, 12, 13, 14, it's a low budget situation. So <laughs> yeah, he, um, he would, he would trade tapes with his friends at school. Um, he would take home and he had like one of those, which I didn't have at the time. One of the, the cassette things where you, the, the dual cassette where you could copy. Yeah. One tape. Yeah, he would borrow his friend's tapes, make a copy, and then he was a really good artist. So he would draw, he would hand draw the the album cover art and make his own little uh, insert like J card. That is so awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, dude, this kid was great. Jimmy Hooper, that was his name. Um, And so I I had never okay. So I had heard his tape. So and I had just seen the cover, his hand drawn justice cover of of a lady justice so i had no idea what metallica looked like um which probably i mean uh, uh, you know uh, um a lot of people who just watched mtv had no idea what they looked like because they didn't have any videos mm-hmm. um, but then um and then i remember seeing the one video and being like oh holy shit wow these guys like they look tough too like you know what i mean like mm-hmm. not only is the song badass like they look and then so man and and justice uh like it's it's because it was the out and I think a lot of people have this experience because it was the metallic album where I was introduced to them like black album wasn't out yet um because it that was like the current metallica record when I got into them it's still my favorite metallica record yeah and I think that that's common with with a lot of bands actually we've talked about that Greg and I that's Greg's favorite too yeah um yeah Greg named a Dillinger song after the street date yeah. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Greg was actually the first person I ever discussed doing a Metallica podcast with, and uh, two plus and fifty some guests later, he still hasn't been on. <laughs> 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 Which I mentioned to him every two weeks or so. <laughs> uh, at, at one point, we were actually going to have him on for the twentieth anniversary of that street date, and now that's already that was oh. a, that was a year and a half ago. <laughs> yeah, that's been great. Wow. I think that is a fairly common, I call it time, place, and circumstance, where yeah, yeah. when and where and how and what was going on in your life when you got introduced to a particular band will greatly influence. You know, I, I once 
uh, got into a, an argument with a friend about, you know, what's the best Slayer record? And of course I was arguing Rain and Blood and he was arguing Seasons, which was bizarre to me because I, I had never even heard that presented as an argument. And yeah. um, and then I realized partway through the conversation, like, oh, wait, that's the record he discovered Slayer on. Right. And then it was just like, all right, I get it. Like, end of discussion. Gotcha. Yep. Yep. And, 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 I, and I'm also, I try to be cognizant of that when examining you know, putting the journalist hat on, right, and looking at the catalog of, say, a, a Pink Floyd or the Beatles or something, like, trying to kind of recognize the difference between best and favorites, you know, like, this Yeah. This is, uh, you know, kind of as empirically as possible as one can talk about relative subjects like art, like, this is a band's best album, but this one is my favorite. And sometimes those align where they're the exact same record, but sometimes they're not. But I try to kind of at least pay attention when you're, when you factor in cultural significance and all this other stuff when you try to you know i mean god forbid i ever have to be part of one of those greatest albums of all time things beyond a a cursory you know i think i helped a metal sucks one once but uh you know to me to me that always kind of weighs heavily into those discussions like there's a, a big difference between what's going to be someone's favorite versus what's the best yeah uh, yeah exactly yeah metallica inspires so much conversation with everything they do in the rock and metal community that you can you can pinpoint different eras that were upsetting to different people mm -hmm. so you know there are you know i'm only a handful of years older than you right and yet old enough to remember you know the 10 other thrashers that i knew in ninth and 10th grade at my high school all of them hated justice because it was slow. <laughs> Dyer's Eve is the only good song. You know, I loved it and thought that was a crazy take even then. Yeah. But, you know, and those were the kids that, you know, as I got into hardcore and, and stuff like that a year or two later, all those kids got into death metal. And, you know, by the time we were seniors in high school, they were in, you know, Altars of Madness shirts and Metallica were posters and sellouts. You know, and, and it also coincides the Black Album came out my junior or senior year and jocks in our high school got into Metallica. So then it was just, you know, those guys didn't want anything to do with it at that point. But yeah, I discovered them just a couple of years before you um, when, oddly enough, the Garage Days record was the current release. I, you know, went to buy Justice on Street Date. And I remember, you know, marking the calendar, so to speak, for the premiere of the one video and I was always, uh, you know, I suppose predestined in some ways to be a, a music journalist because I was such a voracious reader of magazines, which was our only way to yep. get information on all these bands back then that in my little group of friends, I was, you know, I remember telling my friends that uh, South of Heaven was going to start with a slow song and, and no one believed me and thought it was insane. Yeah. And I was like, I read this interview with Carrie King where he's, you know, yeah. how, how do we top rain and blood? You can't. So we're going to throw people for a loop and blah, blah, blah. Yep. And, and, uh, I always took some some pride and some satisfaction and having the inside scoop and uh, being able to be an oracle. <laughs> you know. Well, I was going to garage days, of course. So so I heard, you know, I, I sort of heard Justice and, of course, immediately went back and, and I, garage days was kind of the next thing. And I'm sure this is coming. I mean, you do a Metallica podcast, so I'm sure this has come up a million times. But I, to me, it cannot be said enough. Metallica, because of Garage Days, they respond. They turned me on to Diamond Head. They turned me on to Killing Joke. They turned me on to Budgie. Mm -hmm. um, they turned me on to Holocaust. Uh, and then and they turned me on to the Misfits, man. Same here. And and and, uh, I, and there are a lot of people I think you can say that for. Yes. Uh, and uh, that 
uh, man, that that is that what a gift what a gift to like a young kid man to all all that music i mean fucking a man you know <laughs> the the biggest gift of course is what you just described into you know uh you growing up where you did and me growing up where i did and whatever was going on in our lives to have been exposed to all those bands you just named and all the various uh pathways those could set us down and then a gift in a very uh tangible sense to a lot of those great musicians who made that those incredible records yeah who hadn't gotten their due who who now suddenly you know um could quit their construction job <laughs> because of the <laughs> publishing checks that are rolling in um yeah. i just i love that about it too and and certainly you know and we i, I could start a whole separate danzig podcast um yeah, but, yeah absolutely yeah <laughs> but 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 certainly the the breadth of the popularity of the misfits in 2020 owes a significant debt to Metallica. Um, and, uh, and yeah, and you and I are two perfect examples. That's, that was, that was my entryway. And then diamond head, man. I mean, I think about, so diamond heads, you know, first and record lightning, the nations had seven songs on it. Metallica covered four of them. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's insane to me. Dude, at, the, at, at their very first show, they played more Diamond Head songs than Metallica songs. That's crazy. It's crazy. <laughs> and did it in a, uh, you know, in an environment and in a scene where nobody had heard those songs anyway. So, you know, you may as well. Yeah, I had the pleasure of having uh, Brian Tatler from Diamond Head on the podcast. I want to hear that one, man. That's cool. Oh, it's awesome. Yeah. And I, I, I just had uh, Biff from Saxon on. and He's great. Yeah, he's yeah, great. we were talking about that show, of course, and uh, and yeah, how they played a bunch of Diamond Head songs. Also, one of my favorite interviews I've done was Animal from Anti Nowhere League. Oh wow, that's cool. He's a great example of somebody that uh, he was literally working in construction when uh, Metallica covered that song. You know, that revived the band. I mean, he got up in an arena in the early '90s and sang "So What" with them, and you know, the band gets back together and they're doing stuff, but. Yeah, he had amazing stories. Like they were, um, they were thrown off of top of the pops because he brought he brought an axe <laughs> to the show. <laughs> is that one already? Out? Is that podcast already out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll see, oh I'll, man, I got to hear that. I've I'll never spoken with him, and yeah, again, that's another one. Metallica turned me on to anti anti nowhere league, man. Of course, yeah. Dude, he was a he was an outlaw biker at one point, and he yeah, and just in such a great interview. Like he's one of those guys where you you feel like he's your uncle when you're done. You know, like he's, that's he's great. He takes it. <laughs> he, he definitely. He, Gives you the uh, the virtual bear hug. Super sweet guy, and uh, and yeah, and and that was a band. Oh, and that also to another conversation you and I have had before about B sides. Um, so what was the B side to an anti nowhere league single? Yeah, that, uh, that called Woman. Through? Yeah, yeah. I, I have the twelve inch. Yeah. Oh, rad. Right. Yeah. yeah, and that and that wasn't intended to be the song they're known for, and um, it certainly is. Yeah. Um, after the fact, also uh, Metallica fun fact: Ron McGovney hates that song. And and hated that James and Lars would listen to it, and that they listened to it to torture and punish him all the time. <laughs> did you have Ron McGovney on the podcast too? He actually told me that in a tweet. I did have Ellison on and getting the story of talking about the differences between you know the way Ron McGovney played mechanics versus the way Cliff played Four Horsemen, and yeah, we got we we got we got nerdy. It was awesome. Oh, that is cool, man. That is that one out too. Yeah. Oh man. I gotta go back and listen to all these. Wow. Yeah, Elves, Elveson plays it the McGovney way because he had only ever heard the song from No Life to Leather. Sure, sure. Ha, that's great. 
but that that was your entry point. So I'm gonna I'm gonna skip ahead and ask okay. you um, because you have the unique vantage point of a journalist. Um, I know you inducted Ann Justice for All into the Hall of Fame, which had to be a, a watershed moment given that was your yeah touchstone Metallica record. Had you interviewed them through the course of your career prior to that, and if so, what were you know, yeah. tell me about all that? I had I had interviewed um, Lars and Kirk and possibly Jason, I can't remember. I feel like I might have done something with Jason, but like even in Decibel, actually, it might have been a Q&A for um, one of his other bands. I, but but definitely years, even before Decibel even existed, I interviewed Kirk and Lars for, I worked at a, a, tra- a magazine called Trans World Stance. <laughs> I remember. Yeah, which no longer exists. And uh, the great part of that interview, the Lars one anyways, um, was that that was not long after the whole Napster controversy with Metallica. Mm. And I actually got him, and I, I, I believe I was the first person to do this. Um, I got him to admit um, to illegally downloading a song to, um, <laughs> to set an argument about, about something. And I forget what the song was, but uh, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a feather in the cap for sure. And and was yeah, that and that, I was real proud of myself for that. Believe me. <laughs> and, and were those phoners? Yes. Yeah. I've I have. I don't. I've never interviewed those guys in person. I've still never interviewed James Hetfield. Oh wow! So all the quotes from Hetfield for that. Uh, and this bothers me because I would love to interview him, obviously. Mm-hmm. And I I can't remember the circumstances. He was you know quote unquote not available. So all those quotes were from when oh, I can't uh, I'm, I'm I'm totally spacing on the guy's name right now. He did an on the road piece with Metallica for Rolling Stone in in '88, like when Justice came out. Oh, was it uh, uh, David Frick? Yes, thank you. Yes. Yeah, and he he did the uh, the box set video interview with them recently too. Yes, David Frick. Of course, I'm embarrassed for forgetting his name. But uh, so those quotes were contemporaneous with yes justice being current which is which is neat you know yes and all the other ones so i interviewed kirk and and jason and uh and lars and those were all phoners uh and and so those were like you know well after the fact and and those were specifically like hey we're in you know we're putting you on the cover we're inducting this into the yeah you know it's interesting on a way 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 smaller scale way down the food chain the one hall of fame that i did was uh coalesce um yep revolution and 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 that and that was you know and it it's not people's favorite coalesce record but you know they're one of those bands albert put it best like they never really made the record so it yeah. was more about we had to kind of pick we wanted to put coalesce in the hall of fame but it was more like where do we in a similar thing and i'm the same as you where it's always bothered me i could not get james deweese back on the phone for that um i think he was on tour with my chemical romance then and i had just done an exhaustive coalesce oral history for AP. So that, so I had all this material with everybody at the 11th hour. I was like, you know what? I have all that oral history stuff. I can just use something from that, I guess. But what sucks is when I went and looked through all that material, I had, you know, a couple hours of James DeWeese. I had one quote talking about that fucking record. (laughs) Oh yeah. yeah. I I remember it sort of vaguely being a similar situation where, I think there aren't nearly as many Hatfield quotes as there are from the other guys, but what, but it, in a way that kind of wasn't the, what the, the story that came out of that piece was, I, I think, I, correct me if I'm wrong here, 
I think that was the first time where Jason had spoken in detail about why there is no base. It was a hundred percent. Unless I'm also mistaken. That yeah. was, uh, yeah. And, and it was, it, it, it was like shocking to me when he laid that story out. Um, you know, that he basically drove down to LA from San Francisco. I remember the detail. He drove down to San Francisco in his pickup truck with his base shit in the, in, in the pickup truck shows up at the studio. No one from Metallica is there. The producer is not there. It's Toby Wright, I believe, was the engineer. It's the engineer. He rec he records all the bass tracks in a single day and drives back to San Francisco. That was that was it. He he spent one day recording Injustice for All. No one from Metallica or the producer, none of them were present. Which is especially crazy when you think about how Lars is always present for Kirk's solos. And it's yeah. like arranging them and humming them and like co-writing them. Micromanage that, right, yeah. Yeah, man, yeah, what a... I, I've had people explain to me who know more about the technical side of things that, you know, for example, when you go on YouTube and there's like And Justice for Jason and all these like mixes where people, you know, sometimes it sounds like Flea is playing bass because it's like, it's so overpowering, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've had people explain to me that you actually can't because of the frequencies and the way things are scooped, whatever that means. It's a word I use, like I know what it means. That, <laughs> you, that you can't actually even put bass in that record. Like there's just nowhere to put it. I don't, I don't buy it. <laughs> I don't buy it. But, but, I, but I also, I also would like to, I, I have like a kind of an unpopular opinion about that. Um, I don't, I don't think the record, um, I don't think it necessarily needs bass. And, and I, I kind of, I kind of took that argument to its extreme. I wrote an article about that, um, which I don't really agree with this, with the position I took, but I, I, I just kind of took it anyway, which was, I think that record kind of proved that Metallica maybe never needed a bass player. I was, I, I was just going to say, I, I think that yeah. was part of your deck in the, yeah. in the piece yeah. that you, yeah. which was kind of a, yeah. I yeah. mean, it's, it's in terms of its it, the contextual relevance of it and everything. I mean, certainly part of the mysticism and, and, and magic surrounding that record is that you, you can literally hear, the absence of Cliff Burton. Yeah. Um, Cause there's no yeah. fucking bass on the record, but overall the record is so cold and angry and, and mechanical that it, it's a very specific kind of vibe. So I know, you know, when the box set before the box set had come out, I know there were a lot of people kind of hoping that the band would, would give us a remixed version of the record as opposed to a remastered one. And I, I understand sort of the Newstead take, which I think he said in your piece, which was that, you know, he appreciates that people want that and so on, but the record sounds like what it sounds like, and that's how we've always heard it, and that's how we know it, and that's yeah. it's a moment in time, it's a it's a thing, there's a story to it, and that's that's just how it is. And then I've also heard the argument that um you know, that record was was made before Pro Tools and it's yeah. very and it's very mechanical and it's very uh perfect and kind of takes Metallica to the extreme of the technical side. And yeah. that you remixing that record would be next to impossible because of the way that the actual physical tape was, you know, massacred and chopped and spliced to make all those parts sound as perfect as they do. I think you nailed it. I think those two things, I think the, the kind of like the cold steel aspect of the sound along with the 
absence of cliff, which I believe is intentional. Mm. I think those things, I think both, I think one kind of, I think each one of those justifies the other. Like they kind of went hand in hand in a lot of ways. Mm. Like they could kind of get away with, they could get away with it because of the nature of the music and they intentionally did it to show the absence of cliff. I, I think, yeah, like I said, yeah, I think, I think one, I think they both, um, I don't know what the term is I'm looking for. Um, uh, they're like, they're like mutually beneficial excuses. Yeah. Mutually, <laughs> exactly, yeah, mutually I think those two things are mutually beneficial. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that their argument, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, being literally the guy that wrote the hall of fame piece on it. <laughs> I, I believe their argument was also kind of, you know, well, it, it was a pecking order thing where you already have James and Lars jockeying for their respective position. Right. So it's like, turn me up, turn me up, turn me up. And in, right. and in yeah. doing so, the bass was like just not even thought right. about. Because, and, and yet you, know, you managed to work it out for the Black Album. So go figure. And 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 not to, and not to mention Garage Days before that. That's what's so weird to me is like, you know, <laughs> They they used to you know rather famously put not produced or not very produced yeah. or whatever on the on the cover stuff. And it's yeah, like, I love that. Yeah. And it's like man, why can't San Anger sound as good as Garage Days? <laughs> oh yeah, uh, I know. But yeah, and, and then the Black Album, it's uh, it's a completely different record without bass. Um, you know, yeah. and I, you know it's stuff like God That Failed even, where he really gets to shine. Yeah, I think that was one of the most brilliant things that Bob Rock did for that band was um, force them all in a room together and said, be a band. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I am definitely not in the camp of black album haters. I, I think that record is fantastic. Oh, you know what? And that goes back to something I was going to bring up earlier, which is that I, I just, by being a couple years older than you, I can remember people thinking justice was the first bad album. Yeah. And then, yeah. you know, you probably remember people thinking the black album was the, yeah, but you know what, man, I hang out with guys like Scott Carlson from repulsion. Who's like 10 years older than me. And like only likes kill them all. Exactly. Like, I mean, so it's like, it, exactly, it, 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 it goes back to what we were saying earlier, but it's like where you came in, like, you know what I mean? Yeah. People, people and Lars will be the first to point out that people were mad that ride the lightning had a ballad. Exactly. 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 Yeah. Right. Fade so, the black, everyone off. Right. And, 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 and to bring us full circle to something you said, Wayne, that's top of the conversation, like grow up, <laughs> Yeah, yeah <laughs> get yeah, over yeah. it, get yeah. over yourself. And by the way, I think this is something it's maybe worth pointing out actually on the podcast. I don't think I've ever pointed this out before. They're not as accessible as other metal bands, certainly. Not to say yeah. that they're press shy or that they aren't talkative, but they're very precision focused about who and when and what and where they talk to. And when they, when they did Hardwired, I think it was the most press they'd done possibly ever. And they, they turned up, you know, anywhere from carpool karaoke to, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, they, yeah. Yeah. That's a great point. They are not very accessible. Um, I mean, I still have an interview with James, as I said, uh, technically. Um, I know. Okay, I did speak with. Um, I, I spoke with Robert Trujillo extensively, uh, like maybe a year or two ago. I did an Aussie cover story hmm. um, that was kind of about the history of like the Aussie Osborne band. Yeah, I remember that. Um, uh, and he was great. Uh, um, I may have interviewed Newstead for one of his things. It's hard to remember. Yeah, I and, and, and he, I've he, he Newstead a couple times, but I can't remember if that was the last one or I've interviewed Newstead like maybe three times I want to say and I don't know I know one was prior to that uh justice piece and it might have been two that have been prior it might have been one after two I can't I can't remember to be honest you've never interviewed James I've never interviewed Lars 
<laughs> oh wow yeah that's yeah I've, man i've, I've I mean, done everyone but lars i mean basically my list at this point as for people that i have not interviewed that i I've, I've technically interviewed Ozzy, but it was not a satisfying experience. It was like an email thing. So I, mm. I feel like that doesn't count. Um, uh, so I want Ozzy. I want James Hetfield. And, and I have yet to interview Iggy Pop, who is like mm. uh, uh, just a, um, I just hold in the highest esteem. Um, I, I was well, my guy, you know? Yeah. My, my list is pretty short too. Mine, mine is Lars, obviously. But uh, yeah, Lars is, is obviously top of my list. And I go back and forth. You know, two people that have been massively important to me in my life that I've never been able to interview are um, Adamant and Morrissey. I've yeah. I've met Morrissey, but those are also two where I'm just I'm also uh, like scared of those interviews. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I, I yeah. man, I, I always Morrissey uh, Morrissey's autobiography is um, uh, I love I love it because it is um, it's first of all it's. I don't want to, I can't say shockingly well-written because he's a, he's a very um, articulate guy. It's mm -hmm. very well-written, but there's a level of um, like, he, he is like sort of like a whiny bitch in it. Like you would expect him to be, mm -hmm. but he's also, there's a, he's aware of that. Like there's, right, a, there's a level right. of self deprecation about his whiny bitchiness that I was not expecting. And it makes me appreciate him. I mean, well, I, I realized that he's kind of gone off the rails in recent years, uh, yeah. but um uh, I thought that book was, um, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, um, I photographed him once years ago. Oh, wow. Yeah. At, when I still lived in Boston, he, he played at the, um, I want to say, I want to say it was 2002 or one. He played at the Orpheum, uh, which is a fairly small venue in Boston. Maybe, I don't know, 1500 people, mm. something wow. 1200. Um, and, uh, I had like a photo pass. So I was like right up front and, um, I took some really great photos, like with actual 35 millimeter. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Amazing. No, um, I have some really great, I, I don't even know where the hell they are now, but, um, yeah, it was great. When I, uh, was managing the band tiger army, uh, they did a five night stand at the house of blues on sunset. This was 2005. And one of the shows happened to be on Morrissey's birthday and the guys in the band being big Morrissey fans, they, decided to do a Morrissey cover for that show yeah. in honor of his birthday. And then through no one's, I mean, just complete happenstance as far as our camp was concerned, Morrissey came to the show. Wow. <laughs> no, no, I mean, nobody knew how or why, or just, you know, suddenly Morrissey is in the balcony at a table with some friends watching Tiger Army on his birthday. So, you know, as a, as a dutiful manager, I, I sucked it up and went over to the table and I thought, you know, I, I knew enough though that I, I didn't want to tap him on the shoulder. I was like, sure. here's, here's, I'm going to tap, I'm going to talk to one of the friends. So I went to one of the people at his table and said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm the band's manager. Uh, we're all huge fans of Moz. Uh, it'd be fantastic if he wants to come back in the, to the dressing room and say hello. You know, we that'd be great, or I don't know, something to that effect. And I, and I saw her. She leans over and says something in his ear, and he nods yes, very politely. <laughs> and I uh, I scramble to get some because uh, it's certain you know it's L.A. and at a certain point people had realized Morrissey was in the balcony, so yeah. I uh, scrambled to get some House of Blues security together and got him a little escort. And the second the band was done, um, whisked him away into the dressing room. And uh, Brandon from the singer for Bleeding Through was with me, and 
there's this amazing it felt like an hour it was probably three minutes <laughs> there, there was this amazing stretch of time where we go in the dressing room and you know the house of blues has all that like religious iconography yeah, yeah. there was a chair that i could only describe as a throne that was uh -huh. in the dressing room <laughs> yeah yeah and he and he sits in it <laughs> of course of course he does and then his handful of friends kind of sit around and then brandon and i are standing and there's this stretch of like three or four minutes that's just Morrissey, his couple of friends, and me and Brandon from Bleeding Through all together in silence waiting for Tiger Army. <laughs> and, uh, it was just surreal and awesome and fucking rad. And, um, and yeah, the band comes off stage and, you know, bursts into their own dressing room and, and Morrissey's sitting there in that throne. And uh, it's pretty rad. And um, I took a picture of Morrissey with the band. And, you know, always a bridesmaid, never the bride. I'm not in the picture because I'm taking it. Uh-huh. But uh, yeah, it was 2005. So I took I took the picture with somebody's disposable fucking camera. Nice. Well, it was a yeah. little cardboard, you know. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it was it was on the band's MySpace page. <laughs> they must have shit themselves when they walked. Oh off. yeah, it was it was a pretty fantastic moment. And I just started officially representing the band as their manager a couple months before. Oh, so, so maximum points for you. Exactly. Yeah. It was also one of those like you know you better love me forever. I did, but um. <laughs> yeah it was, it was it was pretty fucking awesome good memory you know this reminds me actually somebody who's on my list uh that you may have talked to at some point i've never interviewed axel i, I definitely would want to do that oh yeah i've never interviewed axel either man i mean that uh, I, but i guess i've kind of always filed him away uh as the sort of unattainable um yeah but uh i've interviewed slash and duff a, a couple times each and um yeah same here uh, yeah they're both great they're both great um they're both great i did a um I had a really interesting interview once um, where I was I was still living in Boston and I was flown out to L.A. to do a story on like basically Velvet Revolver as an entity had not even been announced yet. Mm. Uh, and so I was like take whisked to this like practice room. Amazing. North, North Hollywood um, where I watched them rehearse like they, they, this is a band that hadn't like they, no one knew this existed yet. Um was, that was, my was, was Wyland in the band or was it? The, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because yeah. there was a minute before that where it was uh, the singer from Buck Cherry and some other dude from Buck Cherry was oh, the oh, other guitar oh. player. Okay. I, okay. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. No. So it was like, and I met, uh, I, and I did my first, I met them all and did my first interview with them right there. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. I actually did the um, first MTV News interview with Velvet Revolver. They played their first ever show at uh the el ray and it was they did slither and uh set me free the hulk soundtrack song yeah and then everything else was covers they did uh sex type thing it's so easy uh nirvana negative creep and uh sex pistols bodies and it was a super short set and uh yeah but i got to interview the entire band craziest slash story actually i was at the 2002 mtv vmas where axel re-emerged with the reconfigured Guns N' Roses for the first time. And I was uh, enough of a fan and just a, a uh, enjoyer of crazy, bizarre things that I had been following the lost years of Axl Rose, um, you know, throughout the 90s and early 2000s. So when I was at the show and hearing, because the, the, the side of MTV that does the VMAs 
is independent of the news department where I worked. So in a lot of ways, news that was being made, even when it was being made by MTV, we were still covering as a news organization. So no one had told us officially that Guns N' Roses was the surprise act. So we didn't start hear hearing that ourselves until um, during the show. So during the show, we started hearing Guns N' Roses is going to come out and be the surprise act. I was the only person in the news division that was aware that a guy with a fucking chicken bucket was coming out. <laughs> like, no, you know, people thought it was going to be Guns N' Roses. Right. And I'm I'm literally in the truck telling people, uh, no, this is going to be Axel and like this a dude from Primus, a dude from Nine Inch Nails. Like, so, but anyway, um, so that happened. And literally the following weekend, I was at uh, San Diego Street Scene, this like random festival that was like the Roots and Slash played with, I think, Lenny Kravitz. So it wasn't even like a Slash gig. He was just, he just happened to be there. I was wandering around backstage with a little DV cam and an MTV News stick mic by myself. Total Renegade style. Saw Slash. <laughs> Introduced myself, asked if I could talk to him. And um, he was super nice. Uh, we went into a production trailer, just me and him. He sits down on the couch. I turn on the camera. I hand him the microphone. And he says, no guns questions. <laughs> You're like, okay, we're done here. Yeah, and this was a week after. It was literally the following weekend. And I was like, okay, uh, well, yeah, we don't have to talk about that. We, I mean, I get it, you know. And he's like, yeah, it's, it's weird. I, I don't want to talk about it right now. I was like, I totally get it, man. And so then I start to ask whatever my first question was. Very nicely, he says, you know what, man? I just, I can't do this. I can't talk yeah. about it now. Yeah. He's like, he's like, I, I appreciate it. You know, you're, it's nothing personal. I, I can't talk. And I was like, totally cool. Yeah. <laughs> so I, did. I, I love that he was playing at a Lenny Kravitz show too, because there's, um, I remember reading this. It, you might be, you might, as a, as a avid reader of, um, you know, rock and metal magazines, mm -hmm. you might remember this too, but, um, so what Slash and Lenny Kravitz have in common, and I can't remember which one of them came up with this term. I believe it was Slash. They're both what you would call bluish, half black, <laughs> half, black half Jewish. And I, I want to say Slash came up That's with that. That's amazing. I've never yeah. heard that, but it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Dude. yeah. Uh, okay. and, and of course, you know, Lenny Kravitz has that Jefferson's connection that I will always admire. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Yeah, so and I guess my other my other one would be uh, Liam Gallagher, which I I got to do a really nice, long, awesome interview with Noel Gallagher once upon a time. But uh, I'd love to do Liam at some point. Noel Gallagher, I would love to interview Noel Gallagher. Actually, he I he is to me he is one of the funniest humans on the planet. He's so uh, great. He is fucking hilarious, man. Someone compiled. I remember seeing it like a year ago. Someone compiled like a list of best interview quotes. Mm -hmm. Him and I think. Uh, Man, they're like just the, the the two that I remember vividly are one. He's talking about his brother, and he said, um, "You'll never meet an angrier man in your life." He's like, he's like a man, he's like a man with a fork in a world of soup. Yes, I remember that one. <laughs> and another one he was talking about. He referred to Jack White. He referred to Jack White as Zorro on donuts. Yes, I remember that one too. Oh, he's so fucking great. Yeah, it was it was actually pretty cool. And dude, I. So I, I talk in your ear forever. We just have so much in common. My first week at MTV, I, I was, long story, but the very, very shortest version is I was hired to report on movies. And it was definitely one of those fake it till you make it where I had come in through the music department and, and didn't get the gig. And then got another phone call asking if I 
also wrote about movies and I lied and said yes. Um, <laughs> but uh, I came in as a, as a movie reporter and I shared an office with a music guy. And my first week on the job, I get to talking to this guy. He's he, he's still one of my good friends. Um, he was from Iowa. I was from Indiana. We're both here in California, so we have all the stuff in common. And he was like, hey, man, um, so you're a music guy. He's like, I have an interview today that I can't go to. Um, and I needed to get somebody to cover it. Um, would you mind? And it was my first week there. I barely had anything to do yet. Uh, and I was like, oh, sure, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. Who's it with? And he's like, ah, you remember that band from the 90s, uh, Oasis? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm like, dude, that's one of my five favorite bands of all time. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah, I was at a hotel in Santa Monica, and uh, I think they were here for Coachella, maybe. It's 2002. Yeah. yeah, my first week there, April 2002. And I go in, and we were like five minutes late. And the first thing, my very first interaction with Noel Gallagher is us walking in the room, and him pointing at his wristwatch and staring at me holy shit yeah right and i'm just like worse i'm so fucked <laughs> this sucks and once we got going um and you know it, it's the it's the it's the best advice i can give to any anyone who does any kind of interviewing for a living establish trust early with your first couple of questions by demonstrating that you are informed yes and unless they're a complete asshole which is extremely rare it's gonna go well and, yeah. that, and that was my Noel Gallagher trick, and it worked like a charm, and we sat there way longer than we were allotted to, and we talked about all kinds of shit. And it was the height of new metal, too, so he was like, you know, all, all these Americans need to have a shave and put on some proper trousers that fit. <laughs> and, uh, and he's like, and now you, now you got these guys in masks and boiler suits. What's that about? And, you know, <laughs> yeah, it, it, that, was the, that was what saved the Noel thing, for sure, because I have a vivid memory. I can picture it like it's happening right now. Of him tapping his watch <laughs> and staring oh, at me. God, that is that is fucking man. I had I had one. Uh, I similar. It was funny, man. I did a, I did an interview with um, when Prophets of Rage started like uh -huh. a few years ago, whatever. I did a thing with Chuck D. Uh -huh. And um, they had uh, they had allotted it for because uh, it was like one of those three page Q and As in 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 Decibel. Oh sure, um, yeah. You do you do those, you do those every issue, right? Yeah, yeah. And you got to fill up a lot of space. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, so we had to ask for like 40 minutes, I think. Um, and the publicist had agreed to it. And then so I get on the phone with Chuck. And the first thing out of his mouth is, I can tell you right now, this ain't going to be no 40 minutes. He's, oh, like, God. <laughs> he's like, my kid, he's like, my kids don't get 40 minutes. I kept him on the phone for 39 minutes and 30 seconds. <laughs> and it was a great interview. <laughs> God, but that first moment, you're just like, holy shit. I know. It's like, oh, God. Like, you know what I mean? And especially, it's like, it's like you with No Gallagher. Like, this is a guy, like, I love, you know, this guy is, is I, I grew up listening to this guy's music. I love it. You know what I mean? And it's like, oh, we got to start like this. Like, you know, fuck. What was your sense? Because I've, I've seen, for example, in the David Frick YouTube thing that Metallica posted when the Justice box set came out. And they do this long retrospective. Lars seemed to be in a frame of mind in that particular interview where he didn't really, you know, sometimes you get that version of Lars where he's like, forward, forward, forward. Mm. I don't want to dwell on the past, you know. And so it was a little, he was a little cagey, it seemed to me, relative to Kirk and James, who seemed a little more open into revisiting the Justice thing. And, and then they had, they had Trujillo there. You know, he, he kind of offered his two cents as obviously someone who wasn't in the band when it came out. But but then there's other times, you know, where you see interviews with Lars where he, he, he 
he is feeling reflective and he will because he is also you know he's the historian of the band he's the guy who has like the archive he's probably the one that they went to to get all the shit that's in the box oh yeah i'm sure i'm sure yeah yeah so what was your i i guess i guess which one did you encounter when you know he gets on the phone knowing that he's talking about a, a justice hall of fame you know what, man? That's a good question. I have to. I'd have to go back and reread the piece. I honestly can't remember. I remember being. Um, I don't. I don't think I was like. I mean, I was disappointed by the fact that I didn't get to talk to James, but I don't remember being disappointed with any of the other interviews. And of course, I was especially pleased with yeah, the, the Newstead thing. Was it, 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 it was a revelation. I remember at the time being. Like, yeah, yeah. I mean, fuck. I was like, oh shit! Like people are going to read this. Like it's you know what I mean. Once it gets out, what is said here, you know. Um, uh, but yeah, I don't, I, I, I honestly can't remember. Um, I do, um, I do remember in the, in the older interview, um, you know, when, when I got him to admit the, um, the, 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 down, <laughs> the, yeah, down, yeah. the thing, he was like, he was like, he's an especially, I mean, cause obviously he admitted that and it wasn't too long after the Napster thing. So he was obviously in a really good mood on that one. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can't remember honestly for the justice one. I'd have to go back and, and read the piece. And, you know, speaking of Chuck D and Lars, bringing us really full circle. Um, I've talked about this on the podcast before, and I often recommend people go watch it. And it's really funny, too, because the third person involved here is Charlie Rose, who has been Me Too'd since then. Uh, But there is a great Charlie Rose episode from the height of the Napster controversy where he has Lars and Chuck Dion as opposing views on it. It's on YouTube, and it's um, Lars talking about, you know, it's Lars Napster bad and Chuck D Napster good. And when you watch that thing in 2020, every single thing Lars says is correct and came true. And 80% of what Chuck D says is way fucking off. (laughs) And it's, yeah. And And of course, in the moment, no one would, everyone, everyone watching that in the moment read it the other way. Yeah, I know because Chuck D seems seems like so much. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and Lars yeah. was getting. You know, I think that what I think really screwed them public image wise with that, and this is where the punk rock rock part of me, like I was with them in the sense of like they weren't. And people were like, oh, they're greedy, they're chasing every penny, and it's like no, they they just want to control the way that their stuff is put out. Right. Um, yeah. That's what they. And, and the whole thing started because. You know, the song for the Mission Impossible soundtrack, like an unfinished version of it, hit the radio via Napster. And that's what that's why they were mad. What what fucked them was when, you know, Napster was like, hey, we're just the platform. Like, we're not the ones actually putting your music on there. Right. Um, if you, you know, you'd have to go to each individual. And I mean, we don't even know who all of them are. And that was that was what led to Lars delivering the reams of paper identifying each and every individual, which to me was a fuck you to Napster, not to the people on those lists. Yeah. But there's still yeah. no way that you it was so easy to paint that as like, look, Metallica is suing their fans. And, um, you know, but dude, he one of the number one things he says in that Charlie Rose thing, which is so true, is he's like, this shit isn't free. He's like, we can all talk about the evil record industry and blah, 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 blah. But there are investors putting hundreds of millions of dollars into this. They're expecting a return. Like people are going to figure out a way to make money. It's just not going to be us. You know, it's like, and yeah, when you fast forward to like, you know, pictures of Kim.com's fucking compound, you know, like he was, he was right. You know, it's like that man, I forget who said it, but there was a great quote, um, you know, Seth from Anal Cunt. He didn't say it, but it was said about him. Seth Putnam is wrong about a lot of things, 
but um, he's right about you. <laughs> and, that's, and that's kind of like Lars. Like Lars is wrong about a lot of things, but he was right about Napster. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just I'm 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 going to be stuck for the all weekend thinking about the. Uh... Because I'd forgotten it, that uh, he's a man with a fork and a world full of soup. <laughs> oh, it's so great, man. It's so, I, I, I actually, well, I credited him, but I, I borrowed that line for, I, I wrote an article recently about um, jumping rope. Uh-huh. Uh, like, I've started jumping rope. Like, yeah, you know, I've seen you posted stuff where you're boxing and shit. Yeah, yeah. So I started jumping, and I, and I, and so me starting to jump rope, that's what I felt like, a man with a fork and a world of soup. Oh, so I, I, I credited uh, Noel in the piece, but uh, I, I had to use that line because it just captured the, uh, the sentiment. <laughs> That's so great. What do you think it is about the band throughout every era? Because, you know, one thing that I say in the metal community is love them or hate them, like what they put out, hate what they put out. Every time Metallica puts something out, it is the conversation. Yeah. You know, it's uh, even people that uh, allegedly swore them off several eras ago still have an opinion about whatever they do, especially when they put a record out. Um, What do you think it is about the band that, persists and that you know makes them you know when you look at every single one of their contemporaries i mean there's there is no one else um guns and roses which i wouldn't necessarily call a contemporary and of course they were gone for a long time you know nobody else is playing those size venues you know nobody is is uh is has the resources to staff such a large organization you know um, what do you think it is about them in particular that has has kept them consistently at the the top of the pile of this whole world of music? I think it's partly because I think they created something that was. I mean, you can obviously trace the lineage of of heavy metal back to Black Sabbath, and you can go through the line and and take all the influences of Metallica, took Diamond Head, and the New Wave of British heavy metal. You can you, you can take all that stuff. They it, they didn't create heavy metal, obviously, but they they created it. They synthesized it, I guess, maybe in a way that was exactly right for the moment that they arrived. And they have. And if you like heavy metal today, um, people talk shit about Metallica now all the time. You know, they haven't they haven't put out a good record in thirty years. Blah blah blah. Um, if you like heavy metal, you like Metallica. You may not like all of Metallica. You like something. Mm-hmm. You like something that they did. They're, 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 I defy anyone to show me the person who likes heavy metal but does not like at least a handful of Metallica songs. Mm-hmm. You have to, man. And, and and for a lot of people, and a lot of people, it was that it was the gateway. Um, yeah, man. I just think uh, they, you know, you can take what Slayer did. Slayer didn't really. Slayer maybe took it to like the sort of satanic extreme and the, and the, you could say they were the, the fastest, um, but they didn't make anything that was, uh, it wasn't, I don't know. I hate to use the word pop friendly, but well, it wasn't, it, it was yeah, so, it was, so insular. It wasn't yeah, accessible. It was negative, negative. I mean, Dave Mustaine did it to a certain extent later um, a little bit, but like, like even look at like the second Metallica record escape is a fucking pop song. Mm-hmm. So it's a pop song. It may be in a heavy metal the this, the sonically, it may be a heavy metal song. And I think that's why they didn't play it live until like <laughs> 20, 30 yeah, years later. Man. Yeah. I mean, they, so they had that thing, man. And that's, and that's, 
and which is which incidentally is why I don't I you know unlike a lot of people um I love the black album I think it just shows that they could do anything and be and be good at it mm-hmm. um, and yeah I don't I don't really like much of what they've done since then um but uh I mean, to me, they're just totally, they're, they're one of a kind. That's the short answer is they're one of a kind, you know, that's it. I mean, yeah. the whole big four thing doesn't even really make sense to me because, uh, I think they have transcended that. And, you know, and Mustaine, and I understand where he's coming from, but he complains that it's Metallica and the three amigos or whatever, the way yeah. that it's presented. But, you know, it, it was, I remember when the clash of the Titans tour happened in the States and at the time, Megadeth, Slayer, and Anthrax were all roughly the same size, playing the same size venues, selling the same amount of records. And so it made sense that that was a rotating bill. You know, Alice in Chains opened every day, and then those three bands rotated. But even then, it was clear that if there was a big four tour, Metallica was the clear headliner. And that's just, you know, it, it's no kind of value judgment on the artistry or the output that any of those bands are doing. It was just the sheer level of success of, of, of yeah. pe- market penetration, if you will, they're just a much bigger band. So, and it, it's interesting too, because the big four thing, uh, it'd be, it would be interesting to trace that one back and see who coined that phrase. I'd be, I'd be interested too. Cause I'd be, I can guarantee you it wasn't anyone in Metallica. No, certainly not. Um, I mean, it, it was something that popped up in the press, but I, 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 yeah. would, lo- I would love to somehow know, you know, it's one of those things like new wave of British, Heavy metal, you know, I, I think Tom Bashore came up with new wave of American heavy metal, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was told recently by Dwid Hellion that I came up with the term metalcore, which huh. I had, <laughs> I had kind of suspected, but until he said it, and he's, you know, in my opinion, they invented metalcore with those of fear tomorrow. Yeah. Uh, you know, and by the way, like everyone and every genre tag, he hates the genre tag and he, he gives me shit for coming up with it. But, uh, but he says I came up with it, which, which may be true. I've yet to see evidence otherwise, I guess. But, um, but it is interesting how that stuff, those, those tags and everything kind of enter and, and then become canonized. Well, Jay, thank you so much for giving me so much of your time. Oh, Ryan, man. Thank you for having me on the, on the show. I appreciate it. I'm, I'm 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 honored to be included, and I'm very excited to go back and listen to um the previous ones that I that I've missed. Um, yeah, so. you're you're in the canon. There's some yeah. there's some fun ones. I mean, uh, gosh, yeah, uh, Rob Flynn talking about you know Metallica at Ruthie's End being his Ed Sullivan Beatles moment. Um, you know, there's some there's some fun ones. Tell fucking Greg to do it, man. I know, right? I literally. He may or, he, someday down the line. He's you, me, and Greg should do an all justice special. Yes, you're one of my favorite writers, and I, you know you had a, a great description about kind of the the beast that was Pete Steele, how you had encountered him then in this yeah kind of sweatpants and yeah kind of the skeleton of Pete Steele. Um, oh. I still remember the vivid kind of. And that, and dude, I mean, that's a whole tangent we could go on some other time, but it's kind of a lost art in rock journalism these days is that kind of set in the scene stuff yeah. doesn't really happen anymore. No, no, man. Just, a, just a few of us. Yeah, I know. I'm Phil, you know, Phil Freeman, probably. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've never met him. I don't think, oh, maybe I did, but yeah, I know. I know who he is. Yeah. Great writer. I did a cover story on Asking Alexandria years ago for AP mm. and he posted a, a snarky, you know, I just read an 8,000 word cover story on asking Alexandria and not a single word about their, what they sound like. 
<laughs> and um, and I private messaged him on Facebook, and I was like, I was like, hey, um, actually, there is about 350 words on their sound. It's a it's a single paragraph, but yeah. fair point. You know what I mean? It's like I'm not going to nitpick you. You're right, but. If if you're reading that story, you know what they sound like. They're, yeah, no shit. Yeah, were, if, were, if you care to read eight thousand words on them, you know what they sound like. Yeah, exactly. Right. So that was you know. Yeah, man. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, man. Thanks, Ryan.